And if you would, turn your Bibles to the letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy, or if we were from the UK, 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 3. You'll find it on page 1178 of your pew Bible if you want to use that, 1 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, You may have noticed this over the years. If you've been in our church for a while, we tend to run the church a little bit like a school. So this is kind of like day one of the new semester, and so we've returned to our studies in the pastoral epistles. Um, We were looking at the Psalms through the summer where everyone's traveling. It's kind of up and down through the summer, so I wanted to lay aside the pastorals for the summer, and now we come back, and God willing, we'll be in the pastorals the whole of the fall, really until we uh, get to Christmas So what are the pastoral epistles? The pastoral epistles are three letters written to two different men. The letters are 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus, and they're written to two different men, Timothy and Titus. The church from very early on called these letters pastoral epistles because they believed, and I believe, that they give us the clearest picture of the duties and the work of pastors in their congregation. And so for really 2,000 years, uh, these letters have been taken as the Bible's kind of clearest teaching on what pastors and really I'd say elders in general are to be about in the life of the church. Now we did say as we studied chapter 2 and 3 and we looked at the role of elder, it is true that in the New Testament, formally at a sort of word level, there are only two offices in the church, the office of elder and the office of deacon. However, from the very beginning, and I mean right after the apostolic age, the church has always recognized that within that one office of elder, there are different manifestations or roles. And that's really what the church has been after as they've called these letters the pastoral epistles. And so the early church called Timothy and Titus bishops. They saw them as men who were called by the Apostle Paul to extend and continue his apostolic work on a full-time basis. However, Timothy and Titus are never called apostles. They are delegates of the apostles, something, something like what we have today uh, with pastors. As we look at these letters, I hope already, just as you think back to kind of some of the things we've discussed, two things really stand out to you. One, uh, they are a reminder to us that the early church was not perfect. Uh, the problems we have as a congregation uh, with illness and uh, persecution and failure are not new. This church had been planted by Paul just a few years prior. He had done amazing miracles there, and yet what do we see in 1 Timothy? They're already struggling. They're already drifting from the truth, and Timothy is sent to correct that. And not only is the church uh, suffering and struggling just as we are, but you'll notice also that these letters are the product of suffering. You'll notice in our uh, reading this morning that Paul begins by saying, "I, I really want to come to you. I really want to come to Ephesus and and talk to you in person, but I can't. We think that's probably because he's under house arrest right now. But whether it was house arrest or sickness or the cost of travel or danger on the high seas, whatever it was, notice this. Almost every letter in your New Testament is there because Paul couldn't show up. 
because God in some way frustrated him or prevented him or because he was too busy suffering. And so God used all that suffering, all that struggle to give us these glorious, glorious letters. And so that in the moment, Paul might have thought, why can't, you know, why isn't God just allowing me to go? Why isn't he allowing me to do my ministry? And yet all along, the Lord was withholding that blessing from Paul so that he would sit down in that grief and frustration and write. And all those wonderful writings have come down to us. Well, this is one of them, 1 Timothy. And we've come this morning to what everyone agrees is the beating heart of this letter and the most important verses in it, the verses that really animate the entire letter. So would you please stand and I'll read them. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This is God's word. Let's pray now and ask his blessing on it. Father, indeed, your spirit wrote these things so that we might know what it is we ought to do in this, your church. Now open our hearts to receive it. Make us willing and ready servants. Make us desire to do in the church what you want done in the church. Help us not to consult with our own heart or to consult with the culture and ask it what it likes, but rather to turn ourselves now entirely to you, asking you, Lord, to reveal to us what you desire in this, your church, which is the very body of Christ. Father, give us willing and open ears this morning, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. This morning, we are going to be looking really at just one verse, verse 15. We don't normally take just one verse, but this one verse is absolutely packed to the tights, to the top, with theological content. It is a mini version of Paul's whole theology of what the church is. It's uh, interesting, in a quick survey, uh, every denomination of Christianity relies on verse 15. It plays a critical role in the Catholic catechism. It plays a critical role in the book of Concord, that is the doctrinal statements of the Lutheran church. It plays a critical role in our Westminster Confession. All of these churches and all these communities rely on this verse 15 because it is so rich, so succinct, and gives to us a full and robust theology of what the church is, how Paul saw the church. And what I want you to see with me this morning is the sort of three dimensions he uncovers here. First, the church is the household of God. Second, the church is the congregation of the living God. And thirdly, the church is the temple of God. So the household, the congregation, 
and the temple. So notice, first of all, that Paul compares the church to a household, a family. He says in verse 15 that you may know, I'm writing this, so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Now, on the surface, that might not sound overly profound. That might sound fairly simple. But in fact, this is, I think, the controlling perspective of the whole letter and a major dimension of the New Testament's teaching on the church. All through the New Testament, all through your New Testament, the church is portrayed as a household, even though we rarely take the time to notice it. For example, again and again in your New Testament, God is portrayed as our father, as the head of the household. As Moses centered his ministry around the name Yahweh, so Jesus centered his ministry as the greater prophet around the name Father and taught us to use that name and think of ourselves with and through that name. We're encouraged in the Lord's Prayer to approach him as our Father who art in heaven. Or consider Paul's incredible household description in Romans 8. Paul writes, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, or Daddy, Father. Father. As God the Father then is the head of the household, so Jesus then is presented to us as the heir as the firstborn in the household. Romans 8, 29, for those he, he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn, where? Among many brothers. Now remember that the firstborn son, I know we don't do this today, but through the entire ancient world and really until fairly recently, and still, by the way, in some parts of the world, the firstborn son is the one who receives the vast majority of the inheritance, sometimes the entire inheritance. Jesus, Paul is saying, through his death and resurrection, has adopted us into the household of God by the Spirit. The Spirit was his inheritance, and he has now poured that inheritance out for his brothers, for his sisters. The miracle of household grace is revealed in Galatians 4. But when the fullness of time had come, writes Paul, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. If you look for it, you will find throughout the New Testament this household perspective. But let's get a little closer to home. Let's get a little closer to the letter we're looking at this morning, 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy is loaded with household teaching. It's probably the main way you should see it and process it. Timothy is treated, for example, throughout the letter, he and Titus are treated as overseers or stewards. Great houses, and if you watch old movies, you might know this, great houses, those great, you know, sort of Downton Abbey type houses, always have a man of business 
a steward, a chief butler who runs the house and looks after the care of the house. And you can see how that becomes sort of a perfect illustration both for elders and pastors as overseers. That's really what the term means. It's a steward of the house. And it's perfect for us uh, men who are called to eldership because it reminds us every time we use that word that we are servants and that the house does not belong to us. The steward is never the owner. He's not the father of the house. He's not the heir, the son of the house. He's a servant, an honored servant, sure, but still a servant with a great task, looking after something that does not belong to him. And so that language of stewardship uh, permeates all of the pastoral epistles. The author of Hebrews picks this up uh, wonderfully in Hebrews chapter 3. Now Moses was faithful in all God's what? House. You've heard it three times now. As a, literally in Greek, as a steward to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house. Or you could literally interpret that we are his household. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Now notice what Hebrews says here. We are God's house or household. Moses and Paul and John and others are stewards, honored servants chosen for a time to lead and organize the house, but they are not the heirs. They are not the son. And so Jesus' ministry over the house is that of a son, of an heir. Jesus actually owns the house. The house, the church, us, We are his inheritance. We belong to him. And so in chapter 3, what we just looked at last time when we were in 1 Timothy, remember uh, how that perspective really controlled everything Paul said about overseers or elders. Chapter 3, verse 4, an elder or overseer must manage his own household well. Why? Why? Because if he doesn't, how will he know how to manage the household of God? Or think about how this letter began. 1 Timothy 1, Paul calls on Timothy to promote literally, quote, a stewardship that is from God by faith. The same word, this word for a steward or an overseer is used again by Paul when he begins the letter to Titus. In the very opening words of Titus, For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach, writes Paul. In fact, you can't see this in the English, but in the Greek, stewardship and house are really the same word. It's just a modification of that word for house. It's a house servant. It's a steward. The New Testament then calls us to view the church, our church and the whole church, as the household of God. The father as ruler and creator of the household who gave life to everyone in it. The son as the heir of all things. God's ministers as stewards over the house. And then from that perspective, you see, we are called to order then all of our behavior. That's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, I'm writing to you so that you may know how to act, how to live in God's household. This perspective then, 
that we are a household of God, must be central to our understanding of the church and our role in it. We simply will not understand what the church is if we do not see that it is God's house, his household. This becomes even more clear, I think, as the pastoral epistles unfold from this point on. Timothy and Titus are to see the church as the family of God and behave accordingly. Maybe the best practical application of this viewpoint is given to us in chapter 5, verse 1. You just look one page over. Look at what Paul says there. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him how? As you would a father. Treat the younger men, Timothy, as your brothers. Older women, treat them as your mother. And younger women as sisters in all purity. Now, did you hear that? Older men as fathers, young women are to be treated with purity as sisters. This is to be the household of God. We are to approach it as a family, but as the household of God. Now, this rich theology, uh, this wonderful perspective on the church can help us in so many ways. For the pastors, elders, and deacons, and even men preparing for those roles, the image of a steward in a great house is so helpful. Stewardship is what ministry is all about. Paul, in 1 Corinthians, repeatedly calls himself, especially in that letter, he constantly calls himself a steward. And he even talks about the foundation he's laying and the stewards who will come after him, whether they will build with gold and silver or hay and stubble. And he's speaking clearly to the elders, pastors of the church, leaders in the church who will come after him. But more widely, it's bigger than that. The picture is of us all as brothers and sisters. And I think that's so useful. We are to treat each other in that way as family. For those of you who don't have Christian family, you don't have parents, you don't have siblings who are believers, I can only imagine for you how wonderful this is, how important this is, that when you come to church, you, you have brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers. Most early Christians, if you're one of those people that doesn't have a lot of saved family, here's, here's a comfort most early Christians had your experience, not mine. I think almost my entire family, by the grace of God, even down to the uncles and aunts, are believers. But I know that's not normal in this room. But did you know most early Christians were not where I am? They're where you are, if this is your story. They were shunned, thrown out of the synagogue. They lost their families. They lost their culture. They lost everything when they became Christians. So how important was it for them when they came to church, when they gathered with other believers to receive through the church the household of God, to know themselves, to be the adopted sons and daughters of the living God, and with that to have the love and protection of the family? But above all this, remember here the crowning grace. Some of you have heard me say this before. There are many graces that Jesus gives us through salvation, right? Justification, we're pronounced righteous. Sanctification, he helps us. Here's the crowning grace, the one that stands above all the others. It is our adoption. He doesn't just, see, he could have justified us and just taken us back into the house as a slave, 
But the amazing thing about Christian faith and about the gospel is that Jesus doesn't just die for us so that we don't go to hell and then we're received back as a servant. But like the prodigal son, we run to our father and say, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Just let me be a servant. He says, absolutely not. And he puts the ring on his finger and says, you're going to be my heir. You're going to be my child. And because that's what God is doing, because that's what he has done for every person in here as a believer, we are the household of God. And we have to live that identity, take that identity, meditate on that identity. We are not simply a gathering of like-minded people who just happen to get together on Sunday mornings and Sunday evenings at a particular time. We are the household of God. We have one father, we have one heir and one elder brother who we all look to, and we are to treat each other with purity, kindness, and respect just as members of a godly household. So first of all, Paul says, to understand the church, you must see it as a household. You must understand it through that lens. Second of all, though, it's not just a household. He goes on to say, it is also a congregation. An ecclesia is the word in Greek. Look at verse 15. That you may know how to behave in the household of God, which is the ecclesia or congregation of the living God. In other words, the church is absolutely a family, but it is not just a family. Now, this is a, a vital perspective, the, the one of household, but it's not the only one. The church is also a church, the church of the living God. This is literally, the word means a congregation, a group of people who are worshiping publicly and God is in their midst. So the picture here is not just of sort of families gathering in a living room and having private worship together as a household. No, it's a picture of what we ideally should long for, the gathering of people for worship. To get at this, uh, Paul uses an incredibly loaded phrase. He calls the Ephesians the church of the living God. That phrase in Greek, forgive me for using Greek, but it's really helpful here. That phrase in Greek really, really matters. It really matters. Paul calls the Ephesians the ecclesia of God. It means a congregation, a gathering of God. But what you really need to know is that that exact phrase, the ecclesia of God, is the exact phrase, exact wording used scores of times in the Old Testament to describe the people of God when they gather. It is a very, when Paul says this, it is already a fully established Jewish way of talking about God's people as they come together to worship him. It occurs especially in the book of Deuteronomy, but you've probably read it many times and didn't realize it in the book of Psalms. For example, David brings the household idea and the church idea together in Psalm 22 when he writes, I will tell of your name to my brothers, there's the household, in the midst of the congregation, I will praise you in the midst of the ecclesia. Now remember, the Ephesian church who are reading this with Timothy The Ephesian church and Timothy himself do not have a New Testament. I know that's hard for us to remember. They do not have the New Testament that you have. They do their devotions in the morning. They do their Sunday worship out of almost exclusively the Old Testament. They probably have the letter to the Ephesians, maybe the Gospel of Mark, maybe. 
But other than that, they live their lives out of the Old Testament, the Greek Old Testament. And so they're reading every day when they're reading their Bible about the ecclesia of God, the church, the congregation of God. And so when Paul uses this language, they know without question he is quoting the Old Testament to us. He's saying that we, not the synagogue down the street, but we as believers in Christ are the true congregation of the living God. So that phrase, ecclesia of God, is standard in their Old Testament. Paul knows it. Timothy knows it. The Ephesians know it. And Paul is boldly asserting that the New Testament ecclesia is the true ecclesia. You see, the Jews at this time had two different words. Both of them are from the Old Testament. They're good words. They had two different words to talk about their gatherings. And you know them. One is synagogue. And the other is ecclesia. And Moses used synagogue a lot. And the rest of the Old Testament used ecclesia a lot. And the apostles, with one or two exceptions chose the term ecclesia and use it throughout the New Testament. Synagogue is used of us, of the New Testament church, a few times as well. But these terms and these ideas come right from Scripture. And Paul chose them, and they had meaning. And so Paul describes himself, for example, as the one who persecuted the ecclesia of God. He writes the Corinthians, and remember in the letter of the Corinthians, he says, I'm writing to the ecclesia of God that is in Corinth. In keeping with his Jewish training, Paul treats every individual congregation as one local reality of a bigger reality of the great congregation, the great church around the world. To conform ourselves to that perspective, uh, you may hear at times our pastors, our elders, especially here at Grace, talk about our church, Grace, as one expression of the universal church. That's a very Jewish idea. It came through uh, the Old Testament and then through Paul to us today. Of course, this is why, if you're with us on Sunday nights, we so often and love doing this, recite the Apostles' Creed, and we say together, I believe in one holy Catholic ecclesia. Catholic here is little c. It doesn't mean Roman Catholic. In fact, that's the opposite of what it means. Roman Catholic means Italian Catholic, and Catholic means universal. So it's actually kind of a misnomer to say Roman Catholic. There is no such thing. Catholic is universal. And what we're confessing there is not that there's just one Christian denomination. We know there's not. But that at the end of the day, there is one great congregation, just as Israel would have thought, one great congregation meeting at the temple, and yet there are many smaller congregations, ecclesias, gathering throughout the ancient world. And this is exactly how Paul thinks. It's exactly how Peter thinks. And so in Romans 11, Paul can tell the Gentiles in Rome that they've been taken, quote, out of a wild olive tree, and grafted into an already existing tree, the people of God, the congregation of Israel from the Old Testament. The New Testament, Old Testament do not contain two different people of God. There is one universal ecclesia of which Adam is the founding member of that church. And so we are better off, far better off, using the words Old Testament church and New Testament church 
rather than Israel and church. Because the word church is used more in the Old Testament than even in the New. And so we use that language, but it's very unhelpful and very misleading. What Paul is saying here and boldly declaring in Galatians, in Romans, all over the New Testament, is that those who follow Christ today are one with the true congregation of Israel from the Old Testament. They're the sons and daughters of Abraham, heirs of the promises. You heard that language as we read it. And so we are a family. We are a household. We have a father. We have a son who is the heir, but we are also a congregation. And as a congregation, we gather publicly. That's what the name means. And when we gather publicly, we are united, not just here with each other, but we are gathered, as the New Testament teaches us, with all the saints at all times in history. Hebrews, remember, talks about that great congregation in whom, in front of whom we are living our lives. That's where Paul got that idea. It's where Hebrews got that idea. The great, the great congregation. And so David says, I will go into the great congregation, the big gathering at the temple, and I will praise the Lord. And that's the language Paul has now taken and given to us and called us to understand that not only are we a household, but we are the people of God just as Israel was in the Old Testament. So we have a household. The church is a household. The church is a congregation. Lastly, thirdly, the church is a temple. Paul goes on to say that this church of the living God, verse 15, is a pillar and buttress, or you could translate that word foundation of the truth. With these words, pillar and foundation, I think Paul is now showing his hand, as it were. Something of this has kind of been in the background the whole time, but now Paul makes it front and center. In calling us the house of God and the church of God, and now a pillar and foundation of the truth, Paul is using here all throughout the imagery of the temple. In fact, that language, the house of God even that we started with, is used all through the Old Testament for, especially for, the temple. He's been hinting at it. So he's been hinting at it. But now I think it really, really comes out. Likewise, the great congregation or the ecclesia is the people of God in the Old Testament when they meet, especially when they meet, at and in the temple. It is there that David longs to praise God in the midst of his brethren, what he calls the great congregation. And that is the image Paul has in mind here. Pillars and foundations are not for small family homes, but are the iconic emblems of a temple. Burned onto his own heart and mind is the image of Solomon's great temple, the culmination of David's dynasty, the smoky, fiery glory of God that filled Solomon's temple, greatest moment, maybe the pinnacle of the Old Testament movement. And at the front of that temple, at the front of Solomon's temple, do you know what there was there? Two enormous pillars, six feet thick, as, as thick as I am tall, and 27 feet high. That's what greeted you as you approached the temple. And then if you read 1 Kings 7, you learn that the whole temple was really a construction built around pillars, that everything hung on these pillars that existed all through the temple. If you go to Athens, as I've had the opportunity to do, or, or Rome, 
You, what do you see? What's left most often of these temples? Just their pillars. Their pillars. Now, nowhere was this imagery clearer or more dramatic. Nowhere in the world was this more important than in this city, the city of Ephesus. Because at the heart of Ephesus and towering over it, dominating the entire city, and in view from miles around, was the greatest temple in the world. In fact, if you go online, you do a little research online, you'll find that some people believe that the temple in Ephesus, in this city, was the single greatest wonder of the ancient world, even higher in many people's estimation than the pyramids themselves. The massive temple of Diana, the queen of heaven, had 100 ionic columns, 100 columns. Each of them were six stories high, and the whole building devoted to this queen of heaven, Diana. Many years later, under the shadow of this astounding edifice, John would bring a humble woman with him, Mary, the mother of our Lord, his adopted mother, to the city of Ephesus. Ephesus. No doubt the day she came, by all appearances, she came as a simple village woman. How could anyone guess that her memory would topple Diana and that she would be called the true queen of heaven for millennia to come? But that is another story. For now, we can simply say this. It would have been impossible. It would have been impossible for the Ephesians and for Timothy to have missed Paul's point here. In calling the church a pillar, Paul evokes and has been evoking the temple of the living God. Yes, we are a family, the household of God. Yes, we are a congregation, the ancient and enduring and public gathering of God's people. But moving even closer to the burning center of what the church is, we are above everything else as a church, the temple of the living God. He lives with us and he lives in us. Paul tells us that magnificently in Ephesians 2. He says, we are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. There's the truth. The teachings of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into what? A holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And Peter adds in 1 Peter 2, you yourselves are like living stones and are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So what is the church? What is God doing in the world with his church? It is a family, it is a congregation, but at its deepest level, it is a temple, a place where God lives, where God moves. The temple of Solomon was a sacred symbol to Israel of God's greatest promise to them and the greatest promise any human can receive. It was, the temple really was, this is why they loved it so much, why they were willing to die for it. The temple was for Israel the symbol, the embodiment of every covenant they had ever received, every promise God had ever given them. 
And all those promises can be summed up so beautifully in this simple phrase. I will be your God and you will be my people. Or as we say it in the New Testament today, Jesus says to us, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Now, most of us are comfortable with this idea individually. And it is true. We are individually, each of us who are believers, we are individually the temples of the Lord. And the scriptures plainly teach that. But in this passage, don't miss this. Paul reminds us of what we often forget in American Christianity. The temple is not just something I am on my own. It is something we are together. And so Paul can write, quote, the church is the pillar. The congregation, the gathering of people is the pillar and foundation of the truth. And in Ephesians, he says, you all, plural, you all, the church, are being joined together, growing into a holy temple, a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And at the center of this temple, at the center of this temple, something is being held up. Something is seated. God's presence is all through the temple, no doubt. But Paul says here that this temple, this pillar, this foundation is there to hold up the truth to the world. We will explore this next week more fully. But for now, as a pillar serves to hold up a roof and a foundation serves to hold up a building, so the church exists to preserve and teach the gospel of Jesus Christ. When that mission is lost... When a church, individual or denomination, loses its love for the truth, loses its love for the word, loses its love for the gospel, it dies. It dies from the heart and it rots from the center. Paul knows this. This is what is beginning to happen in Ephesus. This is why Timothy is sent to, as Paul will tell him later, guard the deposit, guard the truth. And call all those in the church to love and follow the truth. This is why this letter was written. And this is why it matters today. Because whether you care about the church or not, Jesus cares. Whether you want a family or not, if you're a Christian, you have a family, like it or not. Now, you may be angry. Someone listening to this may have stopped even attending church and I can appreciate that struggle. This high theology that I've given you often doesn't feel true in the chaos and mess of real life. But we are a religion of faith. Many of God's truths do not seem true in the heat of battle, but we believe. So, do you believe in Jesus? Then believe in his church. He spoke of it often. He made promises about it and to it. Well, says someone, I love Jesus, just not the church. But this is impossible, for the church is the body of Christ and the temple of the Holy Spirit. And that is where I think our text finally comes together. The church is all these things, family, congregation, and temple. It's all three of these things because the church ultimately is a far greater mystery than we realize. Because the church is nothing less, says the New Testament, 
than the body of Christ. Because we are united to him in ways in this life we cannot even fully understand, we are, of course, a family. Because we are united to him as a body, and again, ways we can't fully understand, we, of course, must form a congregation. We are drawn to each other. We're drawn to worship together. And because we are united to his body, we are filled with his spirit, a temple for the living God that smolders and grows. In all these ways, see the mystery of the church. The church is a glorious mystery because it is the body of Christ. He is then the vine. He is the head of the body, the one who fills all things. And this is the truth that lies at the center of all the pastoral epistles. This is the glorious mystery of God's house, his beloved church. Let's pray. Father, indeed, you are even at this very moment doing a great and mysterious work in the world. For you are gathering together a family to yourself. You are then making of that family a great congregation and then by your spirit filling it to be a temple. And all this you are doing, Father, because you have placed every believer in union with your son. I pray, Father, that in this church there would be many who come to love your church, who come to see it for the glorious mystery that it is. So often, Father, our eyes see only the failures, the weaknesses of the church, the petty squabbles, the walls that need paint, and we miss the glorious thing that you are doing in all the world. Give us eyes, eyes to see what lies at the heart of these letters and what is on the heart of our Savior, who is the head of his church. These things we pray in Jesus' name.